Hey folks, my name is Scott Weingart and this is the MCRIT Podcast. Today on the podcast, Cardiogenic Shock 2.0. Way back in episode 10, we did part one. Uh, this is an update and uh, taking it to a much higher level. We're going to discuss mechanical circulatory support and uh, all the various devices for a patient whose ventricles are failing. And we have a special guest and you'll meet her shortly. She is amazing. Before that, quick ad spot. Today's episode is brought to you by the Resus Leadership Academy. Now, if you haven't heard of this, this is a project uh, by myself and Haney Malamut. It is a virtual resuscitation fellowship. Uh, I do a real resuscitation fellowship, but some folks can't take a year off uh, between the end of residency and starting a job as an attending physician. Or maybe you're well into your career, but want to up your critical care game, or maybe you just want to be able to take care of super sick patients. Well, the Recess Leadership Academy is for you. This is a curriculum and one-on-one meetings uh, throughout the months with uh, a variety of amazing ED critical care and resuscitation professors. Uh, This is all virtual. Uh, You don't have to travel anywhere, um, and you will, by the end of it, be... uh, probably the best person in your department at taking care of really sick patients. So if this sounds interesting, if this sounds like something that uh, will change your career trajectory, then come on over to resusleadershipacademy.com. That's resusleadershipacademy.com. And uh, take a look and click the more info link, uh, send an email, and we will get back to you with everything you need to know. Let's get into cardiogenic shock and mechanical circulatory support right now. We generally get started with who you are and what you do. All right. So um, my name is Janelle Vagilak, and I am an acting assistant professor at the University of Washington in the Department of Emergency Medicine, and um, I'm also an intensive care physician. All right. And what is your primary critical care gig? (laughs) So I work in a couple of different ICUs. Um, Most of my time is in the cardiothoracic intensive care unit. And then I also spent some time in the trauma intensive care unit and the medical intensive care unit. All right. Fair enough. And it's the CTICU that we're primarily going to be dealing with today. How, how do you like it up there? Oh, I love it. I think it is the place with, I like to say, all the kinds of shock. And shock is definitely one of my favorite physiologic derangements and um, in particular cardiogenic shock. And our ability to support patients on mechanical circulatory support is probably the thing that really drew me to this ICU. Well, it's, it's kind of good then we're talking about what we're talking about today because that is our topic <laughs> yeah. of conversation. So before we get to the, the complicated technological devices, why don't we talk about your management? Because you do emergency medicine as well. You have a patient come in in cardiogenic shock and you could pick whichever form of cardiogenic shock you like for this. How do you manage these patients before they get upstairs to the cath lab or the CTICU? Yeah, I think like the most important thing is identification of the fact that the patient is in cardiogenic shock. And that's the first hurdle because, um, you know, first off, patients in cardiogenic shock don't even have to be necessarily hypotensive to be in cryptogenic cardiogenic shock, which is a really important, important point. But identification that the patient is not perfusing their organs, that they don't have adequate delivery of oxygen, plus or minus mean perfusion pressure to deliver oxygen to those tissues. And then identifying the fact that this is a problem of poor cardiac output with elevated filling pressures. So the combination of the physical exam, laboratory results, bedside echocardiography, and a skin exam to identify that my patient is in fact in cardiogenic shock is the first step. 
All right, let's, let's piece that out a little bit more. So we have a lot of patients who are just chronically uh, at an EF of 15, 20%, but they come in, they're living their normal life, their skin is warm, they're talking to us, they don't look like they're in distress. Uh, even though the echo looks horrible, that patient's not in cardiogenic shock, correct? Right. So the key is trying to determine which patients are the warm and compensated patients and which patients that are warm uh, maybe they are a little decompensated because they're warm and wet, right, with elevated filling pressures, but they're not poorly perfusing their organs. They just need a little tune-up. They're just decompensated, probably need some diuresis, maybe some change in their afterload reduction. And then we move into the patients who are in cardiogenic shock, the ones that are cold and wet. Okay. So, you know, this is, was such a revelation for me when I started doing critical care. Um, and it's kind of weird that that's where you learn this stuff and not in emergency medicine. But, you know, the, the PICU intensivists were always with the uh, differentiation of shock into uh, skin temperature and, and the warm and wet, uh, cold, et cetera. Um, I never learned that at EM. It's what I learned in intensive care. And it seems so simple, and yet it's such a good dividing line. Has this been you know, you have complicated monitoring technology available to you. Does this hold? When you stick a swan in these patients, does it hold up? It does. And I, I really think that the three key, um, I guess, the three key things that you need uh, for a bedside approach to a patient that you suspect is in shock is really um, going to be a skin exam, looking at the blood pressure in particular, paying attention to the pulse pressure and the diastolic pressure and what that can mean for the type of shock that you're in, and then a bedside ultrasound. And really with these three things, it can really help you determine the differences between the four different kinds of shock and identifying cardiogenic shock and differentiating it from obstructive, hypovolemic, and vasodilatory. And it really is true that with these bedside tools, usually when we put a, right, uh, put a swan in or do a right heart cath on a patient, that we're right, that we didn't always necessarily need that that tool to confirm it, but um, it, it may be more helpful in cases of mixed shock, but often the bedside tools are really good at predicting and determining the patients who are in cardiogenic shock and the patients that are responding appropriately to therapy. Okay, folks, just to put that into perspective, I'm going to be jumping in throughout the show with these little reviews. Um, so you have warm and cold. Uh, what this means is the patient's distal extremities. Are they cold? Indicating low cardiac output. Another hint of that is a poor waveform on your pulse ox if they're on the patient's fingers. And then wet or dry, do they or do they not have pulmonary edema? And the patient who is both cold and wet is a patient you should be worrying about cardiogenic shock from the left ventricular perspective. Their LV is down. It has poor function. Uh, they're going to start building up pressure in their left atrium. It's going to start causing pulmonary edema, and they're not going to have enough cardiac output to well perfuse their distal extremities. So you have cold hands, cold feet. Um, I used to use a temperature gun that I used in my kitchen for looking at surface temperatures of pans and such uh, to demonstrate this to my residents. And of course, Josh Farkas one up me, and he was using a thermal imaging gun to actually be able to show color metric representation of the difference between distal and central perfusion from cardiac output. All right. And I'll put links to that stuff in the show notes. You have a patient you really feel is in cardiogenic shock. What is your treatment in the emergency department before they have all these options of mechanical circulatory support? Yeah. So the first thing that I'm thinking about is, is my patient truly, um, do they have the right um, filling or intravascular volume, right? So assess and address effective circulating volume. And almost always our patients in true cardiogenic shock, we've established that they have elevated filling pressures. 
um, and are not in need of additional fluid. But I think approaching shock, all different kinds of shock in the same algorithmic fashion is important. And then after that, I think about addressing um, in inappropriate vasodilation. And of course, in patients with cardiogenic shock, that's really not the issue because they're already appropriately clamped down. They're freezing cold extremities and often their warm cold line or where their skin goes from cold to warm is up around the knees or elbows really high. So that's usually not the problem. Um, and then I think about augmenting um, cardiac output. And this is the key with cardiogenic shock as opposed to the other types of shock. And so with these patients, starting with an inotrope is important, but I think an inopressor is really important in the patient who's overtly hypotensive. So we talked a little bit about the patient in cryptogenic cardiogenic shock, right? The ones, these are like probably my favorite because they're not actually floridly hypotensive, right? They have a map that's above 65, but they're clearly not perfusing their organs, right? They have shock liver and elevated lactate, altered mentation, um, and an acidosis with tachypnea. Um, but these patients um, are, they're not hypertensive, right? They're not the flash pulmonary edema, wet and warm kind of patient. They're wet and cold, but they're not overtly hypotensive. Those patients, you may be able to start out with an inodilator. So something like dobutamine or maybe milrinone, something that's going to augment cardiac output and also give the patient a little bit of afterload reduction with vasodilation. But for the most part, those patients are the rare ones, and it's going to be the ones who are overtly hypotensive. So they should probably start with an inopressor. So something that's going to cut, give them a little bit of vasoconstriction and also some inotropy, just so that you don't start the dobutamine and then cause vasodilation and make them more hypotensive. I've always been a fan of starting with norepinephrine to oh, see- me too. Oh, okay. So for me, I don't know if the poor heart function is simply due to inadequate coronary perfusion until I get a reasonable map. And then at that point, if the echo shows the need for additional squeeze, then I'd add on an epinephrine uh, or potentially dobutamine. Is that crazy? Absolutely. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. Because you do, like you said, have to augment cor coronary artery perfusion pressure. So you need a perfusing pressure in your aortic root. And if you don't do that, then you're not going to be able to augment pump failure. So I agree. I start with norepinephrine. And I think the key with it is, of course, we, we always call it a vasopressor, but it does have some beta activity, which is why it's probably the safest presser or the best performing presser for undifferentiated shock, right? All comers of shock, norepinephrine is the right thing to do. But I think the key with norepinephrine and some things that I think we, we might miss in the emergency department is that we tend to just use norepinephrine and we tend to crank it and we're focusing on the map. And what can happen is this awful cycle of cranking up the SVR, um, systemic vascular resistance, at expense of the cardiac output. And if, you're, if the mean arterial pressure is equal to the product of SVR times cardiac output, then plus your CVP, if you crank up the SVR in a failing heart, your cardiac output will keep going down. So every time you add an up arrow to SVR, you'll add a down arrow to cardiac output. And you're hoping maybe that the cranking up in the SVR will be enough to make up for what you did to the cardiac output to defend the map for the mean arterial pressure, but it doesn't always. And sometimes we receive patients in the ICU who are on a rocket fuel of norepinephrine and maybe what 
probably would have fixed things was to keep the norepinephrine at a lower level, like below 0.1. And then once you can kind of augment the map a bit, then add on your inotrope to uh, to start to increase cardiac output. Let's talk a little bit about milrinone. I am generally leery of recommending it to standard emergency medicine folks because it does not titrate off as easily as a dobutamine or epi. Uh, are there any circumstances you think that should be the first grab inotropic agent? Maybe beta blockers? What do you think? Um, yeah, you know, I think I agree. Milrinone's tough because it's really, it's a six hour drug. So trying to titrate, it's really challenging and a, um, and a length of stay that's short, I think. Um, and also it's renally cleared, right? So many of these patients who are early in their cardiogenic shock, um, have renal dysfunction, right? Um, if, whether it's a congestive nephropathy because there's too much or your central filling pressures are really high, or if it's truly also arterial ischemia from poor output and low MAP. Um, and so in general, I think often for us, even in the ICU, we're starting with something like dobutamine if we really need an inotrope, um, and then switching later to milrinone once we have some renal recovery and the patient's urinating again. I think the only time that I would probably start milrinone is hey, if I had a patient who was on home inotropes and they had recently weaned him off and he was on milrinone or she was on milrinone and came back in looking pretty shocky, then maybe I'd say, you know what, milrinone works for you and your kidney function's okay, then I'll restart milrinone at the, um, and titrate it up. Absolutely. It's probably about it, I think. I think, that's, I think that's grand. So how do we classify the severity of the cardiogenic shock? Okay. So one thing that's been brought to my attention that I found is really helpful is this new classification schema that's gained some traction that was created by the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Inter Interventions and was um, endorsed by the American College of Cardiology, the AHA, and the Society of Critical Care Medicine and Society of Thoracic Surgeons. And so this is a whole bunch of people, cardiologists, intensivists, um, cardiac surgeons, and emergency medicine physicians that got together and created a classification schema to help us identify um, different kinds of cardiogenic shock or different levels of cardiogenic shock. So once you figured out your patient is in cardiogenic shock, you need to be able to communicate how sick is this patient, because that's going to help you understand, um, you know, do we need to transfer this patient to a place where we can... Um, increase their level of support by moving from inotropes up to mechanical support and what kind of mechanical support might they need. And we need something that's fast and is practical. You don't have to get out your calculator and it's easily communicable uh, or you can easily communicate it across different types of specialties. Well, I'm, 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 I'm bated breath now. So tell me, tell me what this is. Okay. So, um, They've broken it down into this. They have this really nice image of a pyramid and the different levels are A, B, C, D, E. So the, we'll start at the bottom of the pyramid or the least sick patients. So A is the patients who are at risk. They're the ones that are at risk of developing cardiogenic shock due to some kind of disease process that's high risk, like acute MI or an acute on chronic heart failure symptoms. So these are the ones that are not yet in cardiogenic shock, but they're definitely high risk of developing it. Um, so B is when you're first developing cardiogenic shock. So they have relative hypotension or they're tachycardic and not hypotensive, those cryptogenic shock ones. They don't have any vasoactive medications or MCS devices yet, but on their exam, they look volume overloaded. 
they're still warm and they have maybe a minimally elevated creatinine and a normal lactate. But if you looked at their SCVO2, it would be low and they have evidence of a low cardiac output. Um, and then C is the classic cardiogenic shock with hypoperfusion. So these are the ones um, that have that are usually uh, hypotensive. They need an intervention with inotropes or vasopressors and or MCS to restore perfusion. They don't look well on exam. They have mottled skin. They're volume overloaded. They may be confused. Um, they're oliguric. Um, and they have abnormal uh, lab tests telling you that their organs are not perfusing. So these are the ones where you, these are the ones where we say, yes, this person is in cardiogenic shock, classic cardiogenic shock. And then D is similar to C, but they're failing to respond after at least like 30 minutes of appropriate intervention. So you identified they have cardiogenic shock. You started your norepinephrine. Maybe you layered on an inotrope and things are not getting better. The patient is getting worse hemodynamically. Everything is kind of falling apart. And so maybe these patients are on multiple vasoactive medications and or they've um, added on a mechanical support device like an impella or balloon pump, and they're trying to maintain perfusion, but it's not working. And then E is extremis. So these are the patients who are in circulatory collapse. They're near pulseless with hypotension or they're in and out of cardiac arrest with ongoing CPR. And then this would also include patients who've been rescued with eCPR. This is a really helpful classification scheme because what we had before was Intermax. And this was a classification schema that went all the way out to determining who's maybe a candidate for a durable ventricular assist device all the way to a person who's crashing and burning and, and acutely decompensating. But they, we weren't able to sort of parse out the patients who are in that sort of intermax one crash and burn category. This really helps us because we have three categories to communicate to our colleagues of a patient who's not doing well, right? The classic cardiogenic shock who we are hopefully able to stabilize. Then D, we can call up and say, hey, you know, cardiology, I just started norepinephrine and dobutamine on this person with cardiogenic, who I think has cardiogenic shock, and they're not doing well, they're getting worse, I really need your help, we need to get them into the cath lab, and we need to maybe activate our cardiogenic shock team if you have one within your hospital, or if not, maybe I want to ship this patient as soon as possible to a place that has that. Okay, fantastic. I love it. This is a good classification system. It, it's easy to remember and easy to use. So now you, you have this patient, you were treating the ED. Uh, what are you going to do with them? Do all these patients need to go to the cath lab? That's where we're going to get diagnosis and mechanical circulatory support. How, how do you play these after you try to stabilize them in the ED? Yeah. So I think that one of the things that's kind of gaining some traction is this idea of hub and spoke models for cardiogenic shock centers and thinking about, okay, I'm in the emergency department. I've identified a patient that I think is in cardiogenic shock with my skin exam, with my ultrasound, looking at my blood pressure, and probably also putting in a central line and drawing that central venous oxygen saturation and confirming that, yes, this is a patient with elevated filling pressures, with poor cardiac squeeze on ultrasound, who has a low SCVO2, this is cardiogenic shock. And the first step, like I, it, just to keep saying it, is to identify it. And if we can identify it in the emergency department, then thinking about, okay, well, then I need to make sure that I get my patient to a place that's capable of caring for this patient. So um, there, um, 
there are a couple of different papers that are coming out describing this this notion of hub and spoke models for cardiogenic shock, and they tend to um, divide them into different level centers of care, just like we do with stroke and with trauma. Um, and so a level one center would be a place that's capable of both PCI and um, implementation of mechanical circulatory support, and you have cardiac surgery available. Because you have to think about not just, am I going to revascularize this patient if this happens to be uh, related to acute coronary syndrome, but there's a lot of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy in patients who are going to be in need of mechanical support and maybe an exit strategy such as ventricular assist, a durable ventricular assist device or heart transplant. Um, and the earlier that the patients get to those cardiogenic shock centers, the earlier we can begin that workup because really, you know, you only have the clock is ticking once you have a patient, if you do upgrade them to mechanical circulatory support to when you need to get them to some kind of destination, it usually needs to happen within a week. And that may seem like a long time, but it's pretty short. And then when we think about outcomes for these patients, we are starting to see that time to support, just like we used to talk about door to balloon, that may be the new time that we're shooting for. Indeed. All right. So if we were at a smaller hospital um, and you've identified a cardiogenic shock patient, should they, but let's say it is a level two center that has PCI, should they go to the PCI there and see what's going on? Or should you just plan on rapid transfer? I mean, that seems like a tough decision to make. Yeah, and I think it also sort of depends on the of um, the availability and skill set of your cardiologist because the level two centers are the ones that have PCI capable, and they usually don't have temporary MCS. But more and more, um, and the um, axial flow um, impeller pump devices, so Impella that's available in the United States and three other countries, I think internationally, is starting to pop up at different centers in addition to the um, the interaortic balloon pump. And so um, it may, you know, with these patients, if you really think, especially if you have an ischemic EKG, right, to get that patient to PCI, and they can also put in a right heart cath and get an idea, get some more data to understand, is this the right ventricle or the left ventricle or biventricular failure and quantify how bad is this cardiogenic shock and does this patient need escalation to mechanical support? And that can all be done in a cath lab um, with echo and um, right heart cath. And then they're also able to intervene if there is a culprit lesion to revascularize. And then from there, if they're recognizing, wow, this patient's pretty sick, then to rapidly transport to a level one center. All right. Well, let's go through those two basics you just mentioned. The intraaortic balloon pump, that was our, our standard for many years. Uh, it's gotten a lot of hits in the literature lately, specifically in these patients. Um, we have other options. Are these hits motivated by new technology trying to kill the old, or is this really not as good as they would have said it was two decades ago? Yeah. I mean, I think the tough thing about it, a, a balloon pump is that it's, um, you know, it, it does something very different than the, um, the circulatory support devices like the um, Impella and ECMO or some of the other percutaneous like left atrium to aorta uh, pumps like Tandem Life, um, excuse me, or Tandem Heart. Um, and there's a couple of other ones out there too. Um, that really the intraaortic balloon pump is functioning with counterpulsation where it's trying to um, create this sort of negative, not negative, but lower pressure sink to help decrease LV afterload and assist in opening the aortic valve, and then also trying to augment diastolic pressure and coronary root perfusion um, to help 
increase contractility, especially in the heart that's having trouble with coronary perfusion, like acute coronary syndrome patients. But it really doesn't in itself directly change cardiac output with flow. So it's going to increase flow just by trying to optimize the native heart, whereas these other devices are just adding flow directly to the system, whether that's um, with uh, kind of increasing LV afterload with direct flow into the aorta in a retrograde fashion with percutaneous devices like ECMO and uh, Tandem Heart, or if it's directly unloading the left ventricle and kind of giving some maybe favorable, um, theoretically favorable hemodynamic changes to the heart like the Ampella, um, those devices really are directly increasing flow. If your interventionalist had a balloon pump and an Impella in a cardiogenic shock patient, is anyone still placing balloon pumps? Um, you know, I think the balloon pump has its uses for patients where you, especially for the patients who are um, who have coronary artery ischemia and they may not be overtly hypotensive, um, but sometimes they're placed sort of almost in this prophylactic manner to um, that they're a, it's a patient who's high risk potentially for deterioration and want to make sure that um, you know this relatively low risk device is there to help decrease LV afterload and augment diastolic pressure and coronary perfusion. Um, but in general, um, they don't you know, when you're choosing between something that can increase flow directly versus something that's going to indirectly um, um, optimize cardiac function, they, it, it, it really just sort of depends. And, and they tend to, you know, it, it just can't seem to deliver as much um, in a patient who is deteriorating. So, and many of the newer cardiogenic shock uh, algorithms that I'm seeing coming from different institutions, the balloon pump might not be in that algorithm because um, it may not be the right choice for a patient who is already, you know, crashing, is who is deteriorating and overtly hypotensive, that that patient may need a higher level of MCS support, but maybe it has some use for the high-risk patient to prevent deterioration and maybe that's where the best use is. Although of note, when they have randomized patients um, and, you know, there's some argument of the heterogeneity of the patients in cardiogenic shock, but when they randomize these patients to balloon pump or impella, they're really, they're not seeing a difference in mortality. So, so far, I mean, there are still some trials under underway, but, um, you know, that's an interesting uh, and an important thing to consider that is it that none of the devices work or that one really isn't necessarily better than the other, or is there a problem or some of the benefits and risks that they're kind of canceling each other out? I, I don't know. Okay, let's just quickly review the devices we've mentioned thus far. Everyone, I think, knows the general idea between behind the intraaortic balloon pump. Uh, this device sits in the aorta and it inflates during diastole to aid coronary filling. It deflates during systole to try to uh, augment the output of the heart by decreasing the afterload suddenly. And it is variable in the literature how efficacious this is. Uh, we talked about the smaller impella devices, which actually suck blood out of the left ventricle and pump it in to the ascending aorta. So you're kind of just replacing the function of the left heart or augmenting the function of the left heart. It's percutaneously inserted in the smaller variants of the impella and could be done either before or during a PCI to uh, bridge the patient uh, with poor left heart function. 
All right, let's keep going. We've mentioned aortic balloon pump. We've mentioned the impella. And now you've been tangentially mentioning the tandem heart. What's the deal with that? Does that still have a role? I, I saw the literature on that is not quite as strong if you're going to put strong for these other two anyway. But uh, where, where does that fit into the picture here? Yeah. So the tandem heart or these um, centrifugal flow devices that are percutaneous, that are draining from the central um, circulation somewhere, returning to the arterial circulation. Um, through a extracorporeal pump, plus or minus a membrane oxygenator. This really sounds a lot like ECMO, right? So tandem heart, really similar to ECMO. The only difference is, is where you're draining. So if ECMO is bypassing heart and lungs, tandem heart is only bypassing the left ventricle. So the drainage cannula that we'd use for ECMO, if that's going to sit at the right atrial IBC junction, if you, if you transform this into a tandem heart configuration or really just percutaneous LVAD um, that's using centrifugal flow, the drainage cannula would be uh, directed across the intraatrial septum through a puncture and it's draining the left atrium. And then it goes through a centrifugal pump that then pushes that flow in retrograde into the aorta through the femoral artery. And I think that the, 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 the time that you can potentially use this is if you only need to support the left side of the heart. So then you don't need to bypass the right side of the heart. And if you're not bypassing the right side of the heart, you're not bypassing the lungs. So this is just LV support without um, putting in a membrane oxygenator, or I guess I should say membrane lung. CO2 gets no credit, right? Um, so if it's only a centrifugal pump and there's no membrane lung and you're just supporting the left side of the heart, um, it can, it, it is a little bit more simple and you are decreasing the organs that you are supporting and therefore, um, maintaining use of your native, native function. Um, and I guess like what would be the upside and the downside to this? Um, I mean, the downside of this configuration is positioning, right? Because if you accidentally yank back that uh, drainage cannula and all of a sudden now it's in the right atrium instead of the left atrium, now you have a gigantic right to left um, hypoxemic shunt. And so you'd have to quickly reposition it or you'd need to quickly splice in an oxygenator because now you're on ECMO. Um, and, you know, I guess that the, the idea would just be that it, you could potentially maybe run this for longer because you don't have a membrane lung that is collecting fibrin deposits and having trouble with gas exchange and increasing your risk of hemolysis. And um, we may be able to keep someone on this a little bit longer, like some of the other percutaneous single ventricle support like Protect Duo, which is just right ventricular support. Um, And these are the sort of like basically ECMO just without a membrane lung. Um, so that's one uh, theoretical reason. And um, there, there may be some others that, you know, our cardiac surgeons are thinking about and our cardiologists are thinking about as they're implanting these devices. But in general, if you can decrease the amount of support um, that you're giving to your patient and maybe decrease the invasiveness, um, there's some benefit and understanding what it is that's actually failing in your patient and what actually requires 100% support and bypass. Okay, so Tandem Heart, it's a percutaneous LVAD setup. You are putting the drainage cannula up the femoral vein into the IVC, into the right atrium, through the intraatrial septum with a puncture into the left atrium. And that's where you're sucking the blood out. It goes extracorporeally to a centrifugal pump, which pumps it back in retrograde up the aorta. So you are just basically bypassing the left side of the heart. So it is a percutaneous LVAD. 
And uh, let me just briefly mention VA ECMO because um, Janelle and I talked about it a little bit, but just due to the flow of the editing, it's probably better I just briefly mention it here and then you'll hear a little bit more about it towards the end. So VA ECMO, which for folks who aren't familiar, we're going to do drainage just before the right atrium or actually with the tip in the right atrium. Uh, We're going to suck it to a centrifugal pump, send it through a membrane lung, and then back retrograde up the aorta um, through the iliac artery. And uh, this has its role in cardiogenic shocks primarily in biventricular failure or a patient who is peri-arrest or actually in arrest because we could crash a patient onto VA ECMO very quickly compared to some of these other technologies. And it will support both the patient's lung and uh, circulatory needs. Now, the problem is for a patient with a failing LV, um, you really haven't made the heart situation any better with VA ECMO. In some ways, you've made it worse because now the heart has to pump against even a um, higher afterload and therefore a failing LV will be failing even worse and uh, potentially we will begin to overfill and back up into the lungs and now you have kind of a disaster. So uh, VA ECMO for left ventricular failure is kind of a temporizing measure but on its own may not be the win in cardiogenic shock and that's why we haven't spoken about it much in the course of this podcast. What would you do if you were an intensivist and they called you up and said "Uh, I have a level D cardiogenic shock patient from an outside hospital. They've already placed the impella. Um, they're already on insane doses of inotropes and vasopressors, and they are still not doing well. Yeah. So that's where we would, um, in our hospital system, would utilize um, our heart shock team. So many of these level one cardiogenic shock uh, systems have a sort of emergency response system that they're setting up because with other really time-sensitive diseases like trauma and stroke and STEMI or AAA or aortic dissection, we have these response systems. And cardiogenic shock is really no different. I mean, these patients decompensate in minutes. So I think that it, it is really important to develop a multidisciplinary team of folks to lay eyes on this patient and talk about this patient immediately. So um, what we would do is... Um, it. Um, And what many centers do is page out your interventional cardiologist, your intensivist, your cardiac surgeon, and your heart failure cardiologist, and talk with the person who's referring this patient to you. And then get an idea of what kind of data do we have? Do we have um, hemodynamic data from a right heart cath? Um, What do the laboratory tests look like? Like what is the lactate? What are the LFTs? What are the, what is your urine output? What is your exam like? And then get an idea of, okay, how sick is this person? And also if they're using that SCAI classification schema and can tell us how sick. So this is, we think this patient's a D. Then we can gather more data to figure out, okay, well, we need to escalate the level of support for this patient. And then how do we do that? What are your options? What, 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 so, what can you do in these level Ds? They've already failed in Pella. Yeah. So, um, the, so two of the things that, that we've found to be helpful, or actually I should say three things. So the echo itself is very helpful to understand. Is this LV failure, right ventricular failure, or bi-V failure? Also to exclude other causes, right? So we don't want to miss like an, an acute or um, an acute on chronic decompensation of a valvular disorder, like unrecognizing critical aortic stenosis or aortic insufficiency or mitral regurgitation. We don't want to miss tamponade. Um, So we've had patients come in that actually we put a probe on their chest and we see a gigantic pericardial effusion um, or any other cause of obstructive shock for that matter. So the echo is really important just to verify we've got the right diagnosis and to try to 
qualify the, uh, the degree of ventricular failure and if it's right or left or both, because that's going to help us pick a device. And then the other things, the other two things um, are uh, numbers from right heart cath that can be really helpful. So uh, these are the cardiac power index and the pulmonary artery pulsatility index. So these are numbers where we can get an idea of sort of classify the overall degree of ventricular instability with this cardiac power index. And this is a really cool thing where often I think the problem with cardiogenic shock is we're looking at one number. We're looking at the cardiac output. We're looking at the mean arterial pressure. But if we don't look at everything together and try to kind of simultaneously measure output and pressure, um, we can kind of miss how sick a patient is. So for example, patients with chronic heart failure may be walking around shopping at the mall with a low cardiac index and they're totally well compensated, but somebody with that same index and a really low MAP and organ perfusion is crashing and needs escalation to mechanical circulatory support. So once we get an idea of what that cardiac power index is, if it's really low, then we say, wow, this is really severe ventricular dysfunction. This is something that's too low to be supported with a balloon pump or an impella CP. So like one of those mid-range flow impellas. So then we're in the severe ventricular dysfunction category. Then we need to understand, is this all the left ventricle or is this all the right ventricle or both? Um, and then from there, we'll use echo, obviously, to look at things like our, you know, fractional area change for the right ventricle and TAPSI or tricuspid annular plane systolic excursion. Another number that's helpful on the right heart cath is this pulmonary artery pulsatility index. And it's basically just looking at the, the difference between the pulmonary artery systolic and diastolic pressures, just the pulse pressure in the pulmonary arteries. And you're dividing that by the CVP. Because as your pulse pressure narrows and your CVP goes up, I mean, that intuitively makes sense that that means that your right ventricle is struggling. It's not able to, your stroke volume's going down because your pulse pressure's narrow. And this is happening all in the face of higher filling pressure. So it doesn't make sense. The stroke volume should be going up, but that's going to happen when the right heart fails. So if we see this really low PAPI um, in conjunction with a low cardiac po power output or cardiac power index, we know that this is a um, biventricular failure. And in the crashing patient, this patient needs ECMO. Okay. So ECMO is for the biventricular failure. What yep. if the right heart was doing okay, but the left heart has failed in Pella? What would be your move in that patient? Yeah. So the patient then with severe ventricular instability, low CPI or cardiac power index, but an okay PAPI, those are the patients that we could just support the left ventricle. So these are the patients who would be good candidates for that big, uh, higher flow impella, the impella 5-0, or maybe the tandem heart where we're just supporting the left ventricle and we don't have to increase the invasiveness of also including a membrane lung and bypassing the heart and the lungs. Janelle, I can't thank you enough. That was amazing. Um, thanks so much, Scott, for having me. I've gotten uh, a great opportunity to learn a lot from you about um, cardi cardiogenic shock and heart failure and MCRIT. And um, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you today about cardiogenic shock.